Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. This podcast is brought to you by Native Grape Odyssey. Native Grape Odyssey is an educational project financed by the European Union to promote European wine in Canada, Japan, and Russia. Enjoy. It's from Europe. Buongiorno, hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Water. My guest today is Attilio Scienza. Attilio Scienza is Italy's leading vine genetics scholar. He's also the chief scientist of the Vinitaly International Academy and author of a recent book called La Stirpe del Vino, published in 2018 by Sperling and Kupfer, about the family ties among grape varieties. Obviously, any student of Italian wine will know that Sangiovese is... Italy's key grape variety, and this is why Attilio very kindly is going to come and talk. He's going to talk in Italian, and we will then translate this interview. This podcast has been transcribed, translated, and read in English from the original interview between Monty Walden and Professor Attilio Scienza, Chief Scientist of the Vinitaly International Academy. Welcome, Professor Attilio. So let's start with the genetic origin of Sangiovese. Sangiovese is a truly symbolic vine because in the past it was thought to have been an expression of domesticated wild Tuscan vines. But instead, with the advent of molecular biology and the DNA analysis of many Italian vines, this theory of its origin has been disproven. There has been a lot of research in this regard. As researchers have sought to clarify the parents of this vine, a vine so important to Italian viticulture, and I must say, the progress of this research has, in its own way, changed the lineage of this vine. What is clear, however, is that the parents are southern parents, who came from Calabria and Campania, and not from Tuscany. This was a shock for you to discover that. Absolutely, but not for me. The shocking part was when we had to reveal these findings to all those people to whom we had previously told our theory at Vinitaly ten years earlier. The Tuscans were shocked as well because they thought it was their vine, that Sangiovese was the champion of their viticulture, their history and their culture. We now know that it is a vine that actually comes from southern Italy and is a vine that, among other things, has been crossed with another important vine of Calabria, the Mantonico vine. The Mantonico vine, allegorical because the Greek name for Mantonico is Montonikos, which means he who prophesizes, he who sees far beyond, he who sees the future. Also, from this cross between Sangiovese and Montonico, many varieties were naturally created, about 40 varieties. But which ones are more symbolic? Well, the most important are those from southern Italy. Nerolo Mascalese, Galliopo di Ciro, the Sicilian Frappato, and the Tuscan Folia Tonda. There are many other lesser varieties that are not cultivated now, but are gathered for collections, which is pointless to mention because there are so many. I must say that the history of Sangiovese is a bit like the history of the descendants of the French Goese vines, also known as the German Haunisch vines, a white grape variety that is seldom grown today, but is important as the ancestor of many traditional French and German grape varieties. Chardonnay is the progeny of a cross between Pinot and this Haunisch or Gowies vine that came from Pannonia, 
and there are about 70 varieties. These are the architects of the European varieties. The European varieties have some progenitors that are included in Gowie's vines, but also the Tramina, and many varieties stem from the Tramina, just as is the case with Sangiovese. Sangiovese is the progenitor of many varieties that have spread from southern Italy to Tuscany. It is here we can see other varieties, such as Brunellone, a sweet Sangiovese, a progeny of Sangiovese, but one that is not Sangiovese. These have a connection to Sangiovese as well as to parent that we do not recognise. So we recognise one progenitor, but not the other. This story is truly incredible and one on which a lot can be elaborated, even in the future, from a cultural point of view. Why? Because we compared the Sangiovese data from many Mania Greca vines with a series we compared the Sangiovese data from many Mania Greca vines with a series of vines of Oriental Greek, Turkish, Balkan and Caucasian origin. And we found that all these vines are more or less related. There are no divisions. They all have something in common, and that there was this great mixture in the past between the vines of the past and those we have now. There is continuity. There is no discontinuity. Perhaps the most interesting thing that many of these vines, which came from specific places, have a tight bond with the human population alongside which they grow, and this relationship is maintained. This is evident with their dialects. We have found, for example, in southern Italy, but it could have been done for Greece or many other eastern places, that all the populations that speak Arabic, which has this ancient Albanian dialect, a Greco dialect, are all dialects derived from the Greek occupation of the past. These populations all have within them a very strong genetic relationship, as well as a close relationship with the vines that are still cultivated today. So we have very precise evidence of this continuity. There has never been a discontinuity. So there is a real bond between man and vine. This is exactly what I'm saying. This is the element that has come to light during these months of research. We have found this continuity between the populations of Oriental origin that are undermined in Italy, that have created Italian communities but that speak ancient dialects, and the vines that are cultivated in those communities and that have relations with the references that have relations with the reference vines from where they started in Greece. Okay, so when people say that Sangiovese was a Tuscan vine, they probably read Soderini, who wrote about Sangiovese for the first time in 1590, so it seemed to be a grape variety. No, it had already arrived in Tuscany at that time, because the first descriptions were made between the end of the 16th and the middle of the 17th century. It is from then that we have the first evidence of Sangiovetto grown in Tuscany. I must say, however, that it was at this point that perhaps Sangiovese had found the ideal place to express itself in Tuscany, more so than in the southern regions. So we could say that a vine is autochthonous, not so much because of where it was born, but autochthonous because of its ability to fully express its genetic potential. Okay. That is true indigeneity. For Sangiovese, for this vine to express itself in the best possible way, what is the preferred terroir for this grape variety? Well, in the present time, there are about 100 Italian denominations of DOCG, DOC and IGT that use Sangiovese either alone or in a mixture. So this variety is of major economic importance. It is a vine that, in order to give its best, must suffer, especially in the ripening phase. If we put it in soil that is too 
too fertile, and perhaps this is the case with those which grow in the south, it produces a lot of grapes, but this grape does not ripen well. It might make a lot of sugar, but with unripe polyphenols, meaning it has a very primitive polyphenolic content. The tannins are not complex, they have not evolved, therefore they can give rise to wines that may be very alcoholic, not very colourful, and with aggressive tannins. When we talk about polyphenols, what do we mean? We mean the chemical families among anthracinins that are responsible for the colour of wines. There are five free anthracinins and five conjugated anthracinins. These are the ones that give chromatic characteristics to a red wine, making them darker or lighter, ruby, with a yellow rim, etc. Then we have a whole series of substances that are pricyanids we call tannins. This is a chemical family much more complex from the structural point of view because they are polymers. There are many small molecules that are put together and become tannins. Tannins are felt in the mouth when we drink a wine. It is that astringent feeling on the gums. It is the reaction that these tannins have with the proteins in saliva that creates this sensation. As the tannins react with these proteins, the proteins precipitate and precipitating gives that sense of dryness. These substances need some particular environmental conditions to become very complex molecules and therefore not very reactive. What we do not want is reactive molecules. We want molecules that have a low reactivity and do not react with our saliva. So if Sangiovese is cultivated in a difficult environment where the maturation is slow, therefore with a sophisticated maturation period, where sugars are parallel to the phenolic maturation of colouring materials, then we get a great wine. I have always given the Montalcino environment as an example, which from this point of view is an ideal environment, just as many areas of Chianti are ideal areas where this vine achieves this balance between phenolic and sophisticated ripening. What are these soils in general? Well, there is a continuity, not volcanic soils, not the metamorphic soils, they are sedimentary soils, but sedimentary soils of a period that straddles the end, so to speak, of the tertiary era and the beginning of the quaternary era. It is an important period for Italy because Italy finally emerges from the sea through a series of tectonic phenomena and many of these materials that had accumulated underwater become dry land. If we look at Tuscany, for example, in this period, Tuscany is an archipelago where the islands are the peaks of the various mountains. Here, when the sea became land, it left sea deposits called fleisch, a German-Swiss word which means to slip. These materials slide from the hills, from the Apennines to the sea in the tertiary era. And when they reach the sea, are crushed and give rise to these characteristic formations that you can see this alteration of sandstone, clay, more sandstone, clay. The Galestri and Alborese are the result of the disintegration of these substances. The ideal soils are where there is a good balance between clay and sand, where the fertility of the soil is not very high where during the summer it suffers and where the plants naturally reach that point where they can no longer grow under these conditions. Instead, it must accumulate everything in the berry. So Sangiovese has found its ideal place in Tuscany. Yes, ideal. These are conditions you don't find in the south of Italy. What you don't find in northern Italy, then there are limits perhaps at least on climate, because it is a vine that needs a lot of heat and light. How come if Sangiovese is original from the south, how did it get to Tuscany? By train? That's a good question. The question we should first be asking is why did Sangiovese and its descendants have such a great influence in southern Italy? 
I would say that that is a very important question. So this, once again, should point us to its colour and the ritual use of this wines in the symposium, where black wines were not used, but wines that had the colour of blood. Was the symposium a religious ceremony, right? More than a religious ceremony. It was secular with respect to its proceedings, but it was a meeting place for different people who could express all their fears and anxieties simultaneously with wine and with a ritual of wine consumption. The Greek people are a people who were able to use the symposium as a way to overcome the problems of psychic nature, their oriental spirit with anxieties, with fears, with the role of divinity that no other people had. In the symposium, they found a place of synthesis. The symposiarch was the individual who addressed topics, the one who introduced topics. The members of the symposium spoke, but also spoke through the consumption of wine. The kylix was the container from which people drank the wine. It was passed from one person to another, and people would speak. The symposiarch also had another role, that of diluting the wine, because an excess of alcohol could cause problems. After this, they might introduce a quality wine, and then only a little at a time. They diluted this wine depending on the guest response. But the main objective was to transform the black wine into red wine, the colour of blood. If you look at the Sangiovese wine, it is a red wine, of course. It is not a black wine. It is not a wine like Cabernet, like Nero d'Avola, like Toroldigo. It is a wine that always has this yellow rim and a blood-red colouring. At that time, at this point, it was not necessary to dilute it. You could drink a pure wine, and this had great results. All the offspring, curiously, of Sangiovese that have these high contents of Malvin are all wines similar to their progenitor. They all have this colour of blood. But when did it arrive in Tuscany? Well, it probably arrived in Tuscany just before the Renaissance period, when the Tuscan bankers, the Florentine bankers like the Medici, loaned a lot of money to various people who were in command during the wars going on at the time. During the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, I am thinking of the part of Italy that bordered Rome and the Vatican, at that point it had become, so to speak, the Kingdom of the Bourbons. They needed money for their wars, and so what did they do? In exchange, in the form of a loan, they gave these lands to the Tuscan bankers. Like a mortgage. Perfect. When the Tuscan bankers sent their experts, their administrators, and they cultivated those lands for them, this would have been when they noticed this vine. Sangiovese, a very generous vine, very productive, that made a lot of alcohol. So they brought this vine to Tuscany. We could call this a little bit of an anthropological explanation. This anthropological explanation means that, at this point people were also beginning to write about Sangiovese. Exactly. Soldavini is the first to write about it. Even if he is the first to write about Sangiovese, it doesn't mean that Sangiovese is a Tuscan variety. No, no, like Vernace, another wine that has been described in Tuscany for a long time, in certain by Redil. Vernaccia was famous because it was a wine from the Middle Ages, but it was a wine that also had that particular origin. Okay, now we want to spend a bit of time describing the differences between a Sangiovese and a Chianti Classico or Vino Nobile or Montalcino or Romagna. What are the differences? Why are there such differences in these wines and in the expression of the plants? Exactly. The differences are essentially linked to the environmental conditions, therefore to the soil conditions, the climate, and to the rainfall conditions. The light conditions, the temperature, the raw materials are different. Then, of course, there are some factors, which are factors pertaining to the winemaking tradition. The winemaking tradition of Romagna is certainly not the same as the tradition in Maremma, that is. The winemaker who works in Romagna makes choices about winemaking that are not the same choices as those in Marolino di Grosseto. 
And here, of course, three things come into play. The way maceration has taken place, that is the time spent on maceration, how long after fermentation when the mark remains in contact with the wine, and thus there are ratios of mark extraction. And in this phase, it is very interesting to properly manage this relationship between anthracinins and tannins, because if the tannins are well mixed with the anthracinins, the colour becomes stable. For Sangiovese, colour is a weak point. In the past, we wanted to make very coloured Sangiovese, and for this reason, we used some additional grape varieties. All the formulas, so to speak, of Sangiovese, apart from Brunello, were all formulas that included some different grape varieties. A bit of canaiolo for a little colour. Even in some ancient formulas, they used white grape varieties. But that was not something I would say that was done without purpose. Some white grape varieties had a role in softening this wine when it had not been aged for long periods, and when it was necessary to sell the wines quickly since they were being sold in flasks. However, these white grape variety phenols were very interesting in their ability to stabilise colour. The colour of Sangiovese is much more stable with two white grape varieties, such as Trebbiano and Malvasia Lunga. They had to create different techniques with some grape varieties, perhaps to bring out colour or encourage this reaction between anthracinin and tannins that stabilises the colour. Therefore, these grapes were important. This is often favoured by a little acetaldehyde that is formed as a byproduct in fermentation. So the winemaker must take good care of this presence. This is the catalyst for this reaction. Here then, the other things beyond the vines is also going on. In Chianti, more and more, making a pure Sangiovese, whereas this choice was made a long time ago in Brunello. In Morellino, they are still using complementary varieties. In Romagna, they can also be used, but they are trying to make pure Sangiovese, because this is the goal, the purity of Sangiovese. And then, the other thing that has changed over time is the use of barriques. As for Borolo, we wanted to make a Sangiovese that has some international character to bring it very close to the American world, closer to the taste of wines made in California. Of course, this stabilised the colour very well, because the tannins of the wood were great stabilisers, but in a way that distorted the character of the original wine. And so, we are returning to the large barrels, not to the 60 hectolitre barrels, but to the 15, 20 and 30 hectolitre barrels, which are much more traditional, and which maintain this character even if it is a little harsh and not always easy for the Sangiovese. Okay, so if my winery wants Sangiovese and I have to think about how to age my Sangiovese in wood, if you were my consultant and I wanted to make a normal wine and I want to age my wine in barrique, what would you tell me? What would be the best choice? If I were the enologist, I would make the following choice. I would put the wine in a barrique for a few months. That is, I would remove the wine at the end of fermentation, still warm let's say, and put it immediately in a barrique so that it finishes its fermentation in the last grams of sugar. Then I'll explain. At the end of five, six or seven months, I would take this wine and put it in a large cask and I would have it there for two years. Why? Because in a barrique there are two effects. The first effect is the chromatic effect. That is, it has the ability to stabilise the colour. The secondary effect is that the barrique gives me a malolactic fermentation very quickly, very efficiently. It gives me complexity and fullness that I would not otherwise get from a longer period of fermentation in a large barrel. The amount of volatility has also decreased. 
Then I would begin the process of self-reduction, facilitated in barriques, which would then give me this great evolution in the wine without making it either reduced nor oxidized, which then completes the large barrel. But is this fashionable? Are there any companies that do it or not? Yes, it is. Many do this. Perhaps not all say so, because everyone would like to return to the tradition of the big barrel. But when I go to these cellars, I see many barriques, so they do something. It's not 100% barrique, but a bit of barrique and a bit of... But this also happens in Nebbiolo, with Barolo. They do more or less the same, and this compromise between the two containers. If we took a geographical tour, what would we notice with Chianti Classico, Montalcino, Romagna, Vino Nobile? What if we took a small visit to these regions with you? What are the characteristics that we would find in the wines and why? Let's start with Morellino di Scansano. Scansano is a territory that has perhaps the highest temperatures during the ripening period because it is a warmer territory. From a climactic point of view, it is one that has the closest proximity to the sea and has soils that are a bit different from the fleece of Chianti and Brunello. They are sedimentary soils with more clay than the others. What does this do? It certainly causes a much slower maturation, which is very often slowed down by the fact that the best expressions of this wine in the territory are high. 300, 400, 500 meters. Above 500 meters, you don't get bigger Sangiovese. You get a little sharper Sangiovese. More vertical acids, but not opulent. Here, at 200 to 400 to 500, you can really make great Sangiovese. This does not change much in Brunello, because even there, the viticulture is localized from 200 to 600 meters even if you cannot go above altitude, because otherwise it ripens longer with the grapes and it remains harsh. In this case, we have more of a sandy component that is given by the sandstone. Moltalcino has a characteristic that is unique in its own way, placed like a kind of panettone. I'm not saying in the middle, but in a very particular position that has four exposures and four altitudes in the middle of the panettone and has very different territories of origin because we start from the secondary era, the Jurassic, from the oldest soils and go to the quaternary up to the Pleistocene. Now we put together an exposure with an altitude and a territory. We get incredible variability. The only problem with Brunello at the moment is that I hear many journalists say that there is no classic classification, not much quality with respect to origin. If we were in France, they would have already codified the Sangiovese of one area rather than another. They would have already outlined profiles. But this has not happened, but it is part of the spirit of the inhabitants of Montalcino. Yes, zoning. Zoning does not exist, they do not want it to. They are afraid that zoning becomes a factor of qualitative classification for the best, and this would not be so good for those who are at the same level. So they have no reason to be afraid? Absolutely not. Why? Nowadays it is no longer a tool that defines a level because we have this comparison with Bordeaux where there are premier crews, but it is not so. We could make a zonation by defining each subzone's basic characteristics of soil and climate to give rise to an original profile that would highlight the differences. That's what counts. We did it for a long time in Banfi. Banfi is a large company, it has 800 hectares, so it is a denomination alone. We have understood that by defining the various origins of Sangiovese, from the lowest areas of the Pleistocene to the highest of the Crustaceous, the Sangioveses are very different. What did they do? They created an 
all internal classification. That's not to say that this was a more or less good thing to do. They made all the wines according to their origin. We do one thing, we do another. Then very often they also cut these things. But it's an understanding of diversity and a means to using it. Yes, so you're saying if I have two Sangiovese in Banfi on two different soils, obviously I have to harvest in a different way. Everything is different. I have to plant different rootstocks, I have to plant notionally different plants, I have to harvest differently, I have to make wine differently. And to mature. Exactly. I would create very different wines that if I had one great vinification, I would lose the diversity. So be more informed. Exactly. To have the knowledge of what is under my feet. Okay, this was Montalcino. Now, let's move on to Vino Nobile. Well, Vino Nobile is a very different territory from the geological point of view because it is a more recent soil than the others. It is a territory that is the result of a large part of those formations of the Pliocene and the Pleistocene that were characterized by large lakes and large rivers. So they are all sedimentary soils, a lot of silt and sand, and there are some fractions of fleece, but very few. Instead, they have a lot of silt and a lot of sand. What does this mean? The Sangiovese is generally more elegant, a little lighter, but it has this characteristic, in my opinion, of maintaining acidity and freshness well, because silt is a component of the soil that maintains acidity. And therefore, there are wines that generally differ from others in elegance. They do not have great structures, they do not have great power, but they do have this finesse that if they are well vinified, they really have this international dimension to their wine. So it is interesting to know also that Vino Nobile is influenced by two waters, salt water and fresh water. Yes, exactly. Also because of the tectonic origin of the sea, it has left these great areas of salt as well. Montalcino also in the lower part. But even Vino Nobile is more continental than Montalcino. Exactly. The more internal you are, the climate too, but it is quite high. Now, let's move on to Chianti Classico. Chianti is difficult to define in two words because it is a continent. In three? Well then, we can say that there are at least three areas of Chianti that can be distinguished. One area, which is the highest, the one much richer in hard materials, the area of Albarese. It is an area that has clay and a little sand. It is a triangle-type area, so to speak, in the highest part. Then we have an intermediate area that is the Chianti area, we can say around Castellina, which has Marl instead, not like Albarese. So there is more clay and less sand. Then we have the lower part, so to speak, towards Cretesinese, towards Siena. The southern part. Yes, where there is a lot of sand. There is this component every now and again of this Sinese clay, which is a bit salty, which also makes it a bit difficult for cultivation. We have these vineyards that die from time to time because of the salt. And of course, the effects come not only from the soil, but also from altitude, because the land is at 200 meters to 600 meters. In short, there is a significant interaction between soil and climate. Okay, if I tell you then that I would be much easier for me to go and buy a Chianti Classico where the name of the municipality is written on the label, so a Chianti Classico Greve, a Chianti Classico Castelnuovo-Verardenga, this makes it simple, no? It's useful. A series of companies around Castelnuovo di Beredenga are making a very interesting attempt. They are making a zone to characterize their companies, their vineyards. They want to define the boundaries and give it character, 
and finally give the area a name. Yes, because it makes no sense to say that my wine is a Chianti Classico di Castelnuovo Berardenga. It makes more sense to say it comes from this part of Castelnuovo Berardenga. Exactly. In that municipality, there are 40 companies that are zoning and want to finally put a precise place on the label. One that goes on the map, finds the place, goes to see the type of soil that is there and understands where it comes from. So we could say it's like the Burgundy model? Exactly. Okay, so let's end with Romagna. Where is it and how are there Sangiovese? So Romagna is just a hilly area towards Forlì, towards Imola, an area of land that is also very recent, from the Pliocene and a bit of the Pleistocene. There are no fleche. These are marine soils because fleche are pterogenic. They are soils that start from the land, they go into the sea, and the sea consolidates them. But they are called pterogenic deposits. The Romagna area is composed of marine deposits, only marine. There are no influences of fleche, and there is a lot of clay, recent clay, that of the Pleistocene. I must say that over time, the choice of the best areas was also made by choosing genetic materials. In Moltalcino, large berry Sangiovese were always chosen, and this was because the water stress transforms the acids only in the skins and the seeds, so it does not add volume. The opposite is true with the clones of Romagna. There they chose small berries because there is more water availability. So where there is more water, the ratio of skins and pulp is very favourable with small berries, so that they will have better concentration. So in general, the drinkability of a Sangiovese from Romagna is not like a Brunello. Easier, simpler, it is a wine that is better suited to fatty cuisine such as meat and pork. The wild boar or the Fiorentina, these foods do not need a powerful wine. In short, you need a wine closer to the spirit and mentality of Romagna. Yes, and that's good for them. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Professor Attilio Scienza. This podcast has been transcribed, translated and read in English from the original interview between Monty Walden and Professor Attilio Scienza, Chief Scientist of the Vinitaly International Academy. This podcast has been brought to you by Native Grape Odyssey, discovering the true essence of high-quality wine from Europe. Find out more on nativegrapeodyssey.eu. Enjoy. It's from Europe. Follow Italian Wine Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. 